Let me just review just a moment because this class is one that builds upon the previous class. The name of this class is In Search of My One Great Magnificent Obsession. It took me three weeks to invent that title. Um, and the whole thesis is this, that God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. Just to review just a moment, the first week we talked about you were born with a capacity as a human being for pleasure so big that no created thing can fit it, can fill it. That's why we run after things and we obtain them and we never end up with sincere joy. We'll have temporary pleasures, but as soon as the car uh, uh, we get bored with the car. We don't change the oil. It gets uh, flat tires. We just neglect it. Whatever we pursue in this life that is of creation, in time you will become bored with because you were made for a capacity to be satisfied so great, so magnificent, that nothing that is created can satisfy that. This quest for satisfaction and the only thing that can satisfy you which I suggested is God himself is so important because whether you're saved or lost you are going to pursue what gives you pleasure you're going to pursue what satisfies you and I gave you the illustrations if drugs is your fountain of satisfaction, if sex is your fountain of satisfaction, materialism is your fountain of satisfaction, you're going to run hard after what gives you pleasure. And that will define how you live. That will create the parameters of your life. If drugs is your fountain of, of, of your quest in life, you will live a life to pursue that, meaning you'll kill, you'll steal, you'll... Uh, lie, you'll do all these things uh, to pursue what gives you satisfaction. So if the thing that we are running for has that much control over our life, then I suggest to you that that thing better be the right thing. And I suggested that that the only thing that can qualify as the answer to this abyss of desire that you have is God. When you were born from your mother's womb, you were born that way. You were wired that way to run after what gives you pleasure, to avoid what gives you displeasure. We were born to enjoy God. And we were born again so we could. Because prior to the, our being born again, the wall of sin separated us from him and made it impossible for us to obtain what we were looking for. And when Jesus died on the cross and rose on the third day, Second Peter says that he, brought, he died to bring us to God. Yes, he died to save us. He died to forgive us. He died to redeem us, to give us new life, make us new creatures in Christ. But he also tore down the obstruction 
that separated us from the thing that we desire most. We also talked last week about how in this quest, we often start out as Christians with a deep sense of duty and discipline. And how duty and discipline are essentials in the Christian life. But they are not the ultimate. They are the penultimate motive for serving Christ. Duty and discipline has its place. But I demonstrated to you last week that your discipline and your duty is not going to be sufficient to carry you through to the finish line. The reason being is because, trust me, as you probably are aware of, the enemy has something far greater than your sense of discipline. I've known men, and you have known men and women, who have um, uh, started this, this journey with Christ with a deep sense of discipline. And today, they are in lukewarmness, vacillating in the world, because they encountered something that overcame their sense of duty and their discipline. But I also suggested that in that process of running after God, in time, if you're serious, in time, what you began with discipline will become your greatest joy. It will change. So we carry on with discipline. We carry on with uh, duty, a sense of duty. He deserves my obedience. He deserves my discipline. But he desires my, my hunger, my delight in him. So now we'll continue on. Are there questions up until this point? I'm aware that some of the things that I'm sharing are probably strange. And they shouldn't be because the Bible is filled with exhortations to come and delight yourselves in God. And I'm convinced that the, the happiest people in the world ought to be Christian. And I don't mean happy because of circumstances. I mean a joy that is internal. But I often find, and you may be experiencing this after having been in this class for three weeks, some of us struggle with this thing and we, we find this enormous gap between this understanding and with this we, we concur. Yes, that's right, that's right. But our heart does not sense that. And we're troubled by the, by the discrepancy between what we're sensing in our mind and what we're feeling in our heart. That's not uncommon. That's not uncommon. And I see that everywhere I go. We want to be what we are not. So my question now is, what do you do when you lack the gladness of desire for God. You remember what, what the Apostle John said in Revelation when he was talking 
in the first person of God, and he was talking about uh, Laodicea and their lukewarmness, how he despises lukewarmness. That should alarm us. And I think lukewarmness should drive us to a, a fight to fight for our delight in God. That's a battle that's worth fighting for. To encounter your satisfaction in Him. But what do you do? There are times when we have, when we don't have the depth nor the intensity of the affections appropriate for God and His cause. What do you need to do in such times as that? We all go through seasons. I was teaching a class yesterday, and this thing of this this Christian walk is a journey. It is a journey. The problem is, is when we decide to camp in the journey. We set up, we find a place we like, we're going to pitch our tent here. And at that moment, you put yourself at supreme risk. Because this life with Christ is a, it's a journey pursuing that one great, magnificent obsession. I'm not pursuing discipline. I'm not just pursuing delight. I'm pursuing Him. And in that journey, I will encounter valleys and mountaintops. The psalmist said that only the rebellious dwell in a dry land. And if your life is characterized by constant dryness, that's serious. Because that's not what Christianity is all about. It's been my experience that when I run after Christ, I will encounter those times of dryness, those valleys, when it's dry, just cotton mouth dry, when there's seemingly no hope, when the bills are due and there's no money to pay, when the tires on the car are flattened, when the doctor's diagnosis is correct. And I can choose to camp there or I can choose to continue to march. And if I choose to continue to march, In time, I'm going to hit a peak. And there the air is thin. There the sights are are wonderful. There the, the closeness to God is just so invigorating. But if I keep marching, in time I'll probably hit another valley. But that's the way that that's the way life is. For a Christian. Our problem is, is when we choose to camp in one area or another. So when you hit a valley and it is dry, don't despair. Keep going. Don't camp. Don't set your roots down. Keep going. Keep marching. Because tomorrow, what today is a valley, maybe tomorrow will be your peak. And when you're at the peak and you're in the best time of life, man, and everything is going great, Live with gratitude. Enjoy the surroundings. Be sweet. 
live with an open hand because what you have tomorrow may be for your to what you have today may be for your tomorrow in the valley are you with me this morning do you understand what i'm saying now but there are occasions when we stay in that area of dryness too long i've known people who have made it a habit in life to just live in the dryness what do you do when what you have here does not correspond with here when you do not have the depth of affections, and I would say another synonymous, uh, uh, synonym for that is emotions that correspond with what God has shown you in your, in your heart. I want to give you three things to do. Well, actually four things to do. When you find yourself in a place where your heart just doesn't correspond with your knowledge. Number one, and I'm sharing this in the, in the context of, of running after your one great magnificent obsession. Number one, confess the sin of joylessness. Confess the coldness of your heart. Get alone with God and tell him, Lord, you know, I'm just about as sensitive as a brick. And just about as emotional as one, too. Don't say and don't tell me that feelings don't matter. Ask your wife if feelings matter. They do matter. They do matter because they reflect the worth of the thing that you have this desire for. And God should be the one that we have the greatest feelings for because he is most worthy. Feelings for God are even more important than the feelings for your wife because he is the all-supreme satisfaction offered to us without our desert. We do not deserve this. And as I mentioned in an earlier class, feelings communicate value. Joy and delight communicates value. You are not going to, to, to pursue something you do not delight in. And if God is our supreme focus of delight, ah, then he deserves our supreme affection. So confess your joylessness. Number two, Pray earnestly that God would restore the joy of obedience. Pay attention to what I'm saying. The joy of obedience. God doesn't just want obedience. He wants obedience that flows from a joyful heart of service. You get the difference between the two. You remember, I remember my daddy, he'd give me a little task to do when I was a little boy, and he, he, or my mama would give me a task, and I didn't want to do it. And I'd start doing it. And, and my mama would say, I'd wash the dishes, you know, I'd be washing the dishes. Better change that attitude, boy. 
Because she knew, and my dad knew, it wasn't just enough to do what you were told. You needed to do it with the right attitude. So, pray that God would restore the joy of obedience. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says this. It, it has to do with Paul's exhorting the Corinthians in giving. But it speaks to us in this area as well. Each one of us, each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly, look at that, not reluctantly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the emphasis there is not just the giving, the emphasis is the attitude behind it, cheerfulness. So pray for God to restore the joy of obedience. Number three, while you're in this period and you're in this shadow of darkness, go ahead and obey the dimensions of your duty with the full assurance of faith that he will restore a glad heart and will fill you with the grace of desire for him and his will. Stay with the discipline. Stay with the, the, the duty, the sense of duty. Do what is necessary, and in time, that will change. He will hear your cry for delighting in Him. And number four, ask the Holy Spirit, who possesses all passion for the Father, to come and fill you until you can say with the psalmist, and besides you, I desire nothing else upon the earth. That has been a quest of mine. It's in Psalm 73, somewhere around there, 73.5, I want to say, where the psalmist says, Lord, besides you, I desire nothing else on the earth. You are my supreme delight, my supreme desire. And he'll change that. How many of you Let's just get a little itchy here. How many of you would say, you know, that describes me, John. Lift your hand if that describes you. One, two, th three, four. Don't be afraid. Where there's a, dis a, a dichotomy between what you have here and what you're experiencing here. That's not uncommon. And God sees that, and he wants to heal that. He wants to restore that. Until your joy in him would compel you to follow him and run after him to the degree that all of the blessings that you have and think are so important are rendered as nothing in comparison to your pursuit of him. That's what I want for me. That's what Judy wants for her. That's what some of you want for yourself. So what I'd like to do is, before we go into the next session, why don't we just pause a minute and pray? Why don't we pray that? Why don't we ask the Lord to come and, and, and we'll confess our sin of joylessness? You can do that on your own. I'll just pray up here, but while I'm praying, you can pray to the Lord. We'll ask him to come in and to restore what he intended to begin with. Hallelujah. And set us on a new path. I don't want to become an old, bitter, religious icon. 
As I grow older, I want to become thinner in the world and thicker in God. I want this portal between me and this goal that I have to become shorter and shorter and shorter. And my ambition is that as I grow closer to Him, I'll be more conformed to Him. So let's pray. Father, nothing here is a secret to you. And these people are here because they really do hunger for something that they can't, maybe can't verbalize or articulate. But we come to you, Lord, and when we look at your magnificent greatness and your majesty, and we see your uncomparable beauty, in all of your infinite perfections, how can we not be blown away with ever-abounding joy? But we are not. The world has come in, Lord, and sucked away our joy. And for some of us, Lord, it's been a long, hard road to follow you. We ask that you forgive us of our joylessness in you. Forgive us for our flat affect when it comes to you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would restore in us the joy of obedience. Not for obedience's sake. Nobody's trying to put notches on their gun, Lord, here. But joy and obedience to please you. For you being our delight, Lord, find delight when we come and, and, and enjoy you, Lord. Let our service not be one rendered out of obligation or forced, but one motivated by joy in you, Lord. In the meantime, I pray, Father, for the strength of my brothers and sisters to see in you, Lord, what is worthy to continue forward in all duty and discipline, bringing under your dominion, Lord, all of the laziness that we have and the indifference that we have, that you might be glorified. What we cannot do on our own, you can. And we ask your help, Lord. And you, Holy Spirit, who has the supreme passion for the Father, unequaled, you live within us. We ask you, come and fill us with this genuine, authentic passion for you. Would you grant us that, Lord? That our lives would be marked with a ridiculous joy. For you. 
And to you, Lord, we'll give you all the glory and all the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let me just say, what I'm saying here is worth the battle. It's worth the battle. Now, let's go on to some new stuff. How many of you all remember when you got saved, things just didn't look the same? They were different. You had a different taste in your mouth. You had a different sight in your eyes. Before you came to Christ, you were governed by the desires of your flesh. That old man governed you. You, were, you didn't have too many choices. The only choice you had was what sin you were going to pursue. The pleasures and flavors of this world were the motivation of your life. You followed them wherever they led you. You ate from them and were very familiar with the delights that they offered, but you were not content. But one day, something happened, and you discovered a treasure. And this treasure gave you a taste for something completely out of this world. I want to refer you to Matthew 13.44. Jesus is speaking of a parable. And this will be our text for the next 15 minutes. Jesus speaks and he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a hidden, like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now what I want to talk to you about in these few minutes is a new flavor. You were governed by the things, the desires of the flesh before you were born again. You followed the taste in your mouth. But when you were born again, God gave you a different In Spanish, we call it paladar, a different flavor, a different taste, a taste for something else. And we see that here in Matthew 13, 44. First, we can observe these following things. There was a treasure out of sight, hidden from the view of of the public. It was not open knowledge where the treasure was. Nobody knew. So is the kingdom of God. It exists, but many do not see it. When Jesus came, not many recognized that he was the Messiah. The prophet Isaiah said there was nothing in his exterior that would lend a a, a clue that he was the Messiah. You just don't come to the treasure on your own. Because it's hidden. John 6, 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And that requires revelation. And then it says it was found by a man. That treasure was hidden, then it was found by a man. The man's walking by one day, maybe carrying his tools on his back, headed out to work, Meager labor, a life of oppression, 
under the beating rays of the sun. His sandals feel all the little rocks in the, in the, in the camino, in the, in the path. When suddenly, out of the corner of his eyes, he sees a glitter, a little glint. Boom! And it draws his attention. And he decides to lay his tools down and investigate what he sees in this field. Such is this man. It was found by a man. One day, your eyes, supernaturally, were opened to the majesty of God. You had never seen anything like that before. His spirit drew you to the sight and opened your eyes to discovery. That might have happened through a track. might have happened sitting in church. It might have happened watching Billy Graham on TV. And you were captured by the supreme value of this treasure. You went off the beaten path that day. And you walked over to that treasure. And you dug down and you uncovered it. And you discovered something that you didn't even comprehend could possibly exist. Maybe you were in church or in an evangelistic campaign or someone told you about Jesus. But suddenly... You saw the treasure with crystal clarity. You understood the gospel. Your mind was captured by truth. I didn't say your mind captured truth. I'm saying your mind was captured by truth. And for the first time in your life, boom, light and you understood. It opened your understanding. And you caught for the first time the supreme majesty of Christ. There in that field, you found what you had searched for all your life. Then the scripture says, then in his joy, the man saw the treasure. And he's thinking, oh my goodness. This is just out of this world. And he's filled with brimming joy. Because all of his life he's trampled in the mud, going to work in the rain, raising his kids the best way he could, oppressed by society and its, all of its limitations. And here he sees something that gives him hope. He's filled with joy. At that moment, when you discovered that treasure... Your desires were changed like that. A hunger for God was birthed in you. Not by you, but by Him. Now, you would never again be satisfied with the world's cheap imitations. The superficial clamorings of people who wanted to be heard. The shallow promises given by a materialistic society. You saw a beauty out of this world and you knew that you would never find satisfaction in anything else. And your heart exploded with joy. Do you remember that? You remember when you gave your life to Christ, the explosion, the nuclear explosion of joy that you had? Well, it didn't just stop within an emotional moment. The guy then, <laughs> he, he looks at it, covers it back up, and he thinks, I'm going home. 
I'm going home. And he runs home, probably doesn't even pick up his tools, gets home, and he tells Judy. He says, Judy, I found something that's out of this world. It is incredible. Now, listen, we've got to buy the field. Got to buy the field. Now, to buy the field, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to sell the refrigerator. We're going to sell the washing machine, the dryer. Let's see. We'll sell the cars, all the furniture. Let's see. What else? We'll sell the dogs. We'll even sell the dogs. What else? Whatever. And she's going there. She's thinking, have you lost your mind? And there's this great separation between the two. Why is that so? Because she hasn't seen what he saw. And what he saw in that field was worth everything he had. So he sells everything. Whatever it costs when you gave your life to Christ, you had paid it. You would pay it to get the treasure. Here you left everything behind to obtain the treasure. Nothing would stop you. No friendship, no job, no family, no past allegiances. Nothing would keep you back. You saw something that gripped your heart. Ripping yourself from the old of this world, from the hold of this world, you left all to pursue this quest to obtain your treasure. And you did all of this out of joy. For this man who has seen the treasure, there is no price too costly. So he sells everything and he comes to the owner of the field and he buys the field and the treasure was worth it. When you gave your life to Christ, I would hope that you had given everything to obtain the field. And the reason you did that was you saw something that sparked desire in your heart and you began a quest to run after the only thing that would give you satisfaction. Now, as a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. This is a dynamic verse. This is not a progressive verse verse. This is not an action that takes time. This is a miraculous verse that occupies a space in time and creates a change. And the mark of that new creature is a new taste. It's a new taste. A new flavor. Now a taste for something else drives you. Your taste has changed and you can never be content with the shallow substitutes of the world. Yes, you desire the blessings of God. You want healing in your body. You want money in your bank account. You want your kids healthy. You want to make straight A's in school. Sure. But those things don't compare. And they do not give you satisfaction. You want these things, but above them all, this taste drives you to want God. That, to me, accentuates what Jesus did on the cross. 
I mean, what he, <laughs> what he did opened a pathway that for otherwise was impossible. 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. I referred to this earlier. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, bring us to God, bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Yes, Jesus died for your sins. Redemption was complete. And you were born again. But he also died that you might come to God. And there is where your treasure is. Psalms 43, 4 says, the psalmist says, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And on the harp, I will praise you, O God, my God. And then in Psalm 16, 11, it says, you will show me the path of life in your presence. Let me repeat that. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Now, let me conclude with this. I don't come here to get the pleasures at his right hand. That's not my motive. I come here for the infinite joy of his presence in which I will encounter the pleasures of his right hand. The reason I come to him instead of what he offers is because he is my one great magnificent obsession. That's why we run after him. Hallelujah. Are there questions or commentaries? I'm doing pretty good, man. I, I'm cutting time. This is this is great, man. I normally teach 50 minutes a session. The Bible says John, that Satan will steal your joy. Yeah. He does that in so many ways. Yes. And your attitude. Yes. Yes. You know, I would, I would suggest to you that the attempt to continue walking with God without this joy will wear you down. It will wear you down. And how many Christians do we know entered into leadership, lost their joy, lost their joy, and now are embittered. It will rob you of the sap of your strength. It will deteriorate your body, confuse your mind, because we're called to do something supernatural. This work is not a natural work. It's a supernatural work. And those who are motivated by this compelling, never-ending, genuine, authentic buscada, search for pleasure in Him, are the ones that are going to make it to the finish line. Well, you're going to make it to the finish line because of the blood of Christ. You know what I mean? But you're going to, you're going to end, come to the place where you have fulfilled your place in God. And that'll be because you saw something in Him that was like the treasure in the field. Someone else? Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. 
I would suggest that we, we pursue God to the extent that we come to a place where all that we have, all that we've been blessed with, lose their importance. Here's a man who says, I suffered the loss of all things. I'm not saying go out and sell everything. But this joy will motivate you to walk in such a way that you will begin to see more than just Sunday morning here. You'll see missions. You'll see needs beyond here. Where your supply takes on relative less importance to you because you're pursuing him. Do you understand what I'm saying? And that's exactly what you see in Paul. Paul, I mean, John Wesley, when John Wesley died, I think he had a saddle and he had a a table and a lamp. I think that's all that he had. And uh, because he invested everything in, you know, in, in others, in others. And because he was consumed with pursuing God. And that's where freedom is, ladies and gentlemen. All your commercials, your, your insurance companies, your investment companies, they're all trying to promote your fear. And that's everyone. And if you pursue him, I think that's a shield and a protection for us. Are you going to say something? I think that's true. But the other side of that is, is God glorified when all I do is obey him? God reprimanded Israel because they obeyed him without joy. Because it is the joy that communicates value. It is the desire. And Israel never got that. Maybe some people got that. They stayed within the realms of rules and regulations. They stayed in the realm of discipline and duty until you come to Jesus facing the Pharisees. And the Pharisees reprimanded Jesus in all of their religious rules. But Israel as a whole, they didn't grasp that, that God had called them to himself as his own peculiar people for a reason they might glorify him with desire. So discipline and duty are very important. But uh, your wife wants more than discipline and duty. And, and so does the father. Anyone else? Well, once again, thank you for being here. Next Sunday we'll, we'll start. Uh, this was on a new flavor. Let me just say that When you're born again, Jesus gives you a new flavor, a new taste in your mouth. And next week, we'll talk about how our quest for satisfaction in him influences our worship of him. Let's pray. Father, 
it would have been impossible to see what we see had we not been given the treasure. Thank you so much for sending your son to this planet to die on a cross and give us life. That we might be new creatures, Lord, whose distinguishing mark is a new flavor, a new taste, something that exceeds all the flavors and the various flavors of the ice cream of the world. A flavor for you. And I pray, Father, for these who are here this morning, that you would enhance that flavor in their hearts for you. That it would grow. Even let it become reckless, extravagant, as we run after our one great magnificent obsession. I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name.